There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We'll begin the readout tonight with the fight to save democracy at home and abroad. This hour in Washington, the House Select Committee on January 6th will hold will meet to hold two aides to the former president in contempt of Congress. We will bring that to you live. But first, the battle to defend democracy continues in Ukraine. For five weeks into Vladimir Putin's invasion, Ukraine's counteroffensive continues to hold the line amid fresh concerns about the Russian dictator's endgame. There is new evidence of Russian brutality on the outskirts of Kyiv, even as a senior U.S. defense official said Russia is making no progress in its advance on the capital. Having failed to take the country, the Kremlin now says it is focusing its efforts on the east, the contested Donbass region. A top Ukrainian official says Russia is aiming to split the country in two, a la North and South Korea. But in the North, Ukrainian forces appear to have notched a significant victory today. Irpin, a fiercely contested suburb of Kyiv, has been liberated, according to its mayor and Ukraine's president, although the U.S. could not confirm that claim. The mayor added that conditions were still too dangerous for residents to return. Cities in the east and south remain under siege, including Mariupol, the devastated port city, which remains under Ukrainian control. Its mayor is calling for a complete evacuation of those who remain, saying the city is on the verge of a humanitarian catastrophe. 160,000 people are trapped without water, power or heat. Ukrainian officials say more than 5,000 have been killed there since the start of Putin's war. Meanwhile, Ukrainian and Russian delegations prepared to start another round of in-person talks in Turkey this week. In an interview with Russian media, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he's willing to consider Ukraine's neutrality in a potential peace agreement. Over the weekend, as President Biden was set to deliver a major speech in Warsaw, Russian rockets struck full fuel storage facilities on the outskirts of Lviv, roughly 45 miles from the border, but from the border with Poland. And today, President Biden continued to grapple with the fallout from his unscripted remarks about Vladimir Putin. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. The Kremlin called those comments alarming. Today, President Biden stood by his remarks as he announced a new budget, which includes substantial aid for Ukraine. I'm not walking anything back. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man, just just brutality. I want to make it clear, I wasn't then, nor am I now, articulating a policy change. I was expressing the moral outrage that I feel, and I make no apologies for it. President Biden said he's not worried that his unscripted comment will ratchet up tension with Russia, saying no one believes the U.S. has a policy to remove Putin from power. Joining me now, former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes and Nina Khrushcheva, Professor of International Affairs at the New School. I'm going to start with you, Ben, because you have dealt personally with President Biden, and Biden will often Biden. He will say things that are unscripted, um, but that are often just true. <laughs> okay, I mean, some of his gaffes are just things that everyone understands. I don't think anybody um, sane believes that Putin should remain the dictator of Russia. Uh, do you think that there's any real impact from that? I know that uh, Macron in France was very um, 
concerned about the remarks, but he's also been trying to be sort of an intermediary and deal with Putin. Do you think that there's any anything real here or is this just more pearl clutching um, around the world and in some of the press? I mean, I think in the long term, Joy, there, there's not much impact to this statement. It obviously wasn't how they would have planned it. It obviously probably raised some eyebrows amongst the allies that we've sought to bring aboard very carefully around our policy. But I, I think it was necessary to clarify that the United States is not shifting to some overt policy of seeking regime change in Russia, um, you know, because that would raise a lot of questions. How are you going to do that? Uh, would you ever deal with Putin again on anything? Um, I, I think it was necessary for them to clarify it. But this is one of these dramas that we get in for a few days in Washington. I think in the long term here, Putin is shown that he's escalating no matter what the United States says. Uh, and the reality is, if there is someone, Joy, who has believed for a long time that the United States is committed to regime change in Russia, that's already Vladimir Putin. I mean, we heard that line from Vladimir Putin back in the Obama years all the time. We've heard that line since the color revolutions came to places like Ukraine uh, and Georgia, even in the early 2000s. Might Vladimir Putin cite this line as part of his kind of whataboutism case that we're out for regime change in Russia? Sure. But if it wasn't this line, it, it would be something else. No, indeed. And Nina Khrushcheva, thank you for being here. I mean, it, 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 there's nothing that Biden could say that Putin wouldn't twist into for whatever he wants. Right? I mean, Lindsey Graham literally said, is there a Brutus in Russia, implying that he should be killed? So I, I, I personally think it is about uh, much ado about not that much. But what I do think is alarming is this idea that Putin would go full North Korea. He's already going down that line. But the idea of trying to essentially turn Ukraine into eastern Ukraine and western Ukraine, like sort of draw a Berlin Wall um, down the toward the east and in Crimea, that seems alarming. Your thoughts on that? Well, I wouldn't really say that it's that new. In fact, the original idea, uh, people right from the beginning, from the end of February, even before that, were talking about the split Ukraine, the western part and the eastern part. So the eastern part supposedly uh, more related, affiliated with Russia, share the language uh, and whatnot. So it really doesn't surprise me that this conversation has come forward. I think what's interesting is that clearly this conversation came forward because the rest of the the rest of Ukraine is not cooperating. I mean, and, and a few days ago, the military already said that the first step of the operation has been completed. That is, we are concentrating on Donbass uh, on that region, and we are uh, going to complete uh, complete that kind of work. So that I mean, it is going to be. If it is a division, it's going to be Ukraine that is the, on the Western part and then the Russian belong part. So I wouldn't even go as far as North Korea because a lot of parts in East Ukraine, actually the original uh, the original ones in 2014 that wanted to be associated, affiliated with Russia. Of course, there's a question of Mariupol and, and other places they don't want to be. And so that would probably be uh, more brutal um, uh, taking over. But other than that, I think the division was in the works right from the beginning. But I mean, Nina, to stay with you for just a moment, I mean, is there any evidence that people in eastern Ukraine 
want to be part of what is emerging as a failed state. I mean, Russia is about to default on its debt. Uh, it's a country that is being starved economically by the world. It's a country that is now reviled around the world. It's essentially an outlaw state. Is there any evidence that people in Crimea, which was a beautiful sort of port, um, you know, capital that's got this beautiful waterfront, you know, or that people in Donbass are not anything but miserable being under Russian control? Is, that, is, that, is there evidence that they want to be a part of what is emerging as a failed state? Well, there's no evidence that people in Crimea have been miserable under, under Russian control. I mean, that really has not been, uh, there is no evidence to that. And many who le- who remained in Crimea did want to be part of Russia, of course. And we talked about in this program, not once, that Putin clearly, deeply overplayed his hand. And so nobody, even Russians, don't want to be part of Russia. That's certainly the right. case. But say that, right, but to say that, you know, that, uh, they they never wanted to be that. I mean, that's why Donetsk and Luhansk became part of the Russian sphere, because they, they wanted that. The question is whether we will continue to want that. I mean, about, about 300,000 Russians now fled uh, Russia, Russia itself. So that is certainly a question. But I don't think that that would give Putin any pause to uh, say, well, didn't work out, uh, and now I'm going to let everybody go. In fact, it's going to be the other way around. The less people want to be part of him, part of his state, uh, the more he is going to force them to be. So yes, in this sense, we can talk about Russia as a black hole, as a North Korea of 11 time zones, and even more now because Ukraine uh, is one one hour closer to uh, closer to Europe. Um, You know, Ben, there is this talk of trying to come up with some sort of a peace deal that would somehow end this horror. I mean, 3.8 plus million refugees and counting, um, as you just heard Nina say, some 300,000 Russians even leaving that country. Um, Let's talk about this, because I don't know how you come up with a peace deal when— the dictator in Russia is deploying the Wagner Group. We now have new, um, you know, news that he is using these Wagner Group mercenaries. He's using all over Africa. These are brutal mercenaries that he's now gone to that. He's essentially gone full terrorism inside of Ukraine. At what point can you negotiate a peace deal with someone like that? Because Ukraine saying they'll be neutral seems to me to be immaterial to Putin. They're neutral now. They were neutral when Crimea was seized. They, they, they're not a part of NATO. So being neutral hasn't seemed to help them before. I, I, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think it is also important, though, to, to look at uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, too, uh, because Putin certainly did not get resistance, violent resistance in, in Crimea. But from 2014, um, you know, I, I don't think that there was some popular uprising in the Donbass region to want to join Russia. I think the Russians basically stirred up uh, and, and really sent people in to uh, the Donbass to try to stir up Russian-speaking populations there. And what we've seen, Joy, is that the pretext for this war was, in part, the defense of, of Russian speakers or ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine. Look at the places that have been treated the worst in this conflict. Kharkiv, Mariupol, these are cities with enormous populations of Russian speakers, and Putin has killed those people indiscriminately, completely indiscriminately, right? In the same way that he's terrorizing the people of Donbass. So first of all, no, I think it's very clear that Ukrainians don't want to live under Russia. Nobody has welcomed Russia in this invasion. Second, I think that the question of neutrality, sure, of course, uh, Ukraine can and should put that on the table 
I think we should support whatever positions they take in these negotiations. But the question is, even if they make a statement of neutrality, what happens to that Russian presence in the Donbass? Because this is a big chunk of Ukraine. Uh, and if Russia thinks it's going to just digest this big chunk of Ukraine and maybe connect Mariupol to that, so that they have their land bridge between Crimea through Mariupol to the Donbass, this was the more minimalist objective that some people thought was going to be Russia's objective back in February. Clearly, Putin wanted something more than that, but he might feel like he's backtracking to that position. But if you're Ukraine, how can you accept a huge piece of your sovereignty essentially being consumed uh, on top of a, a commitment of neutrality? And also, are, are, is there any sense that the Ukrainians who live in these places would just submit to that? There's not. So right. I, I think neutrality is, yes, it's an opening in terms of okay, maybe the basis of some longer-term peace negotiation can essentially be around Ukrainian neutrality. But as long as these questions of Ukrainian sovereignty uh, are unresolved, and what is Ukrainian land, uh, and what can the Ukrainians accept uh, in terms of what is their land, I still think we're much further away from a, a really lasting peace deal. And that's why I think the Ukrainians are being skeptical that maybe uh, the Russians are dangling something like neutrality as the basis for talk, so there can be some kind of ceasefire so that they can stop the supply of weapons going to Ukraine and they can lick their own wounds uh, and, and then resume their military offensive. I think we have to be very cautious uh, uh, about whether or not NATO neutrality alone would be enough to resolve these massive questions about are the Russians going to leave Ukrainian land? Uh, and Crimea right. may be, uh, again, one thing to accept, uh, but the Donbass, I think, is much, much more uh, challenging, as well as Mariupol and the other lands that Russia is currently occupying. Right. And, you know, Nina, the other question is whether or not, I mean, Putin is obviously, you know, he may not want to show fear openly, but this is a man who has banned Russian TV from playing Volodymyr Zelensky's speeches. He's obviously afraid of this man. He understands the power this man has developed, um, you know, around the world, that he has the, the, the sympathy of the world, no matter what madness and fake, you know, Nazi regime BS he tries to pull. It doesn't work. And Zelensky is winning the, you know, the, the information war, as well as it does feel like his troops are winning the war war. So it, it, could it be that the, 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 the world's best bet here is just to put the gas on, which is why I think, you know, to put the gas on the rhetoric that President Biden used, more sanctions, maybe, you know, moving Ukraine closer to NATO because uh, giving them the, the jets, because it does seem like that's the only language Putin will understand. I actually don't think that that's the only language Putin understands. Uh, because he has never shown that he understands the language of, of force. He himself uses force in this sense. I mean, I think also you and I compared it in other programs. In this sense, he's very Donald Trump, is that uh, if you give him, he's going to give you 10 times more. Uh, I think that, you know, it's I'm not a military analyst in any way, but I do think that neutrality is the beginning of a conversation, although I don't think that Putin is going to stop. For example, he takes Mariupol. What about Odessa? Odessa hasn't right. even come into a conversation yet, but it will because Odessa was originally the way they see it as a Russian city. Why does it have to belong to Ukraine? So it is. I mean, you can you can ratchet sanctions up and that's fine, but they're no longer economic sanctions. They're actually killing civil society as well. And so the question is where everything is canceled. 
either from the outside world or from Putin. And I don't think it's that fear per se. It's that he's a KGB man. He's a man about control. Who are you to speak up and tell me how I should behave? The more you tell him, the more he, he pushes back. And so the question is, do we really want Russia as North Korea collapsed? I guess we do because there is a collective responsibility. Russia has to pay for Putin more than other countries have to pay for their dictators. But at the same time, that is 145 million devastated from the inside and from the outside as well. Well, it seems to me that then in that case, Joe Biden might be right <laughs> about the only end game is that Russia's torment will end the same way that Ukraine's torment would end. It, 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 this man is a dictator and there is no reforming or working with or appeasing him, period. It doesn't seem like there is any way. Ben Rhodes. Who is yeah. going to take well, him out? It, well, I mean, I, yeah, and we're not even in the regime change business or in the World War III business, so I, it won't be the United States. Ben Rhodes, Nina Khrushcheva, thank you. Up next on the readout. We are just moments away from a meeting of the January 6th Select Committee who will vote to hold, a, hold two Trump associates in contempt. And there are several other major developments involving the effort to overturn the election, including a bombshell ruling from a federal judge in the John Eastman case that states that Trump likely committed crimes. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. We are awaiting the members of the select committee on January 6th, who just mo minutes from now will be gathering for a special meeting. They are voting tonight on a measure to refer criminal charges for two of Donald Trump's former advisors, Trump's social media manager and advisor Dan Scavino and his trade secretary, Peter Navarro. Both witnesses violated their subpoenas by refusing to turn over documents or sit for depositions. And both were deeply involved in the scheme to subvert the results of a Democratic election and pull off the first American coup. In the 34-page contempt report, the committee says Scavino was likely with Trump on January 5th and 6th, and they say they have reason to believe he may have had advanced warning about the potential for violence. Separately, we know Navarro worked with alt-right extremist and former Trump advisor Steve Bannon on a plot he called the Green Bay Sweep to delay certification of the vote. And Navarro has explicitly said that Trump was on board with that strategy. Separately, the Washington Post reports that the committee now wants to interview Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Their scrutiny stems from the explosive and, frankly, bizarre, seemingly QAnon-fueled text messages that Ginny Thomas exchanged with Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, in which she encouraged him to overturn the 2020 election. 
This comes after the committee today scored a significant victory in court against Trump lawyer and insurrection memo author John Eastman, who tried and failed to weasel out of a subpoena for documents. More explosive, however, is that the judge in that case said that Trump probably committed a felony when he tried to stop Congress from certifying the vote for Joe Biden. In his sweeping and historic 44-page ruling against Eastman today, U.S. District Court Judge David Carter wrote, Based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. With me now, Joyce Vance, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law and a former U.S. attorney, Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation, and Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent. Thank you all for being here, Joyce. I'm going right to you. I am reading through this 44-page ruling, and even just as a layperson, it's pretty jaw-dropping. Um, the the walkthrough that the judge, that the federal judge um, Carter takes us through what happened and this seemingly very specific plot between Eastman um, and members of Congress, and it's seemingly coordinated through the president. Your thoughts on that ruling? So the judge lays out the evidence for criminality between Trump and Eastman in very much the way that I'm used to doing as a federal prosecutor in a document we call a prosecutive memo that folks in a U.S. attorney's office sit around and, and take a look at to decide whether there's sufficient evidence to indict. And in this case, the evidence is laid out in a very compelling and linear fashion. The judge considers the evidence uh, of Trump's intent, which, Joy, you and I have talked about a lot because that's an important and hard to prove issue and concludes that it's there. But but there's one important caveat this judge is looking at the evidence in a civil case context, which means he only had to decide it was more likely than not that the former president and John Eastman were engaged in criminal conduct. And of course, the burden of proof in a criminal case is much heavier. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, and let me read. This is um, number four for my um, wonderful producers. And this is what was written in, as part of this. Um, Eastman and Trump, um, per the judge, launched a campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. Their campaign was not confined to the ivory tower. It was a coup in search of a legal theory. If Eastman and Trump's plan had worked, it would have permanently ended the peaceful transfer of power, undermining American democracy and the Constitution. And Ellie, as we're starting to get pieces of this story, it seems that there were some members of the United States Senate and the wife of a Supreme Court justice who both seem to be on the same page and have the same legal theories, legal theories, I'll put in scare quotes, and be operating almost as if, I mean, if they were playing from the same playbook, for that's for sure. Ginny Thomas, who seemed very determined that uh, the vice president of the United States act to overturn the election, and uh, Ted Cruz, who there's an extensive story about him in the Washington Post about his seeming complicity. Your thoughts? Joy, we don't want to wake Merrick Garland. Okay, <laughs> we, have, we have to be careful to protect him from having to wake up and do his job. I mean, look, to be honest, uh, Joyce was just talking about what she would do as a prosecutor's office. And quite frankly, a prosecutor would be great. It'd be great if we had one in America who was willing to prosecute and defend our country instead of what we have going on right now. Think about it this way. The, 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 the ruling that we have, which is a great ruling and it kind of lays everything out, that's going to be appealed because the Trump side has no good argument. They just have a delay tactic. So they're going to appeal. It's going to go to the circuit court and then it's going to go to the Supreme Court where 
one of the people who was implicated in this scheme, their husband will be one of the judges at the Supreme Court to decide whether or not these emails can actually get out, right? Like that is the system that we have right now. And the person who is supposed to be on our side fighting against that system is, I mean, like we say every time I'm on the show, either Merrick Garland has a super secret investigation going on that nobody knows about, but he's got all the cards and he's ready to go, or it's the biggest failure of an attorney general in American history. Those are the stakes wanna, right now, and that's what we're looking at. And that's what we're looking at. Uh, we, I just want to tell you what you are looking at uh, as you look at the screen. This is the members of the January 6th committee uh, taking a walk in there. I think we have a couple more minutes. I want to get Peter Strzok in here because, you know, the best thing for you uh, as a former FBI guy is when they just admit they did it. And, you know, that makes your job a lot easier. Here's, Pro Navarro, here's Peter Navarro coming on Ari Milber's show thinking he's the smartest man in the room, uh, but just being the guy who admitted he did it. Here he is. If the votes were sent back to those battleground states and looked at again that there would be enough concern amongst the legislatures that most or all of those states would decertify the election that would throw the election to the House of Representatives. Do you realize you are describing a coup? No, uh, I, I totally reject many of your premises there. Um, Ari tried to try to try to alert him to the foolishness he just the, the fool he just made of himself. But I mean, Peter, the thing that's so wild is that when you read the Washington Post piece about what um, uh, Ted Cruz was advising be done, if you read the Eastman memo about what he was claiming could be done, and you go through what Ginny Thomas wanted to be done, and what Donald Trump was demanding be done, they're all the same. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> right, Joy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that's all the more reason it's important to talk to all these people. Now, there are two tracks going on. One, we're watching tonight. We're watching the Congressional Committee, bringing people in, the folks that won't come in, trying to decide whether or not they're going to refer them for contempt uh, prosecutions. But the second part is the criminal justice process. And I understand, I have tremendous respect for Ellie. I have tremendous understanding for the, the, the urgency and sense of urgency and wanting to get this information out. But the fact of the matter is, our criminal justice process takes time. And that's by design. And I get that, you know, we need to and want to get these people on the record. We want to see results as soon as we can. But the fact of the matter, to Joyce's point, this is we have to prove up if we're going to bring charges, it has to be up to a problem cause or, or proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And all the different elements of the crime, there has to be admissible evidence, what we can either show through an email, through a statement, through testimony, that we can achieve that high hurdle. And I can't tell you how many times I walked into work as an FBI agent just frustrated because I knew somebody had done something wrong and I knew that I was never going to be able to take it to a U.S. attorney's office and get them charged. And so that's we see two things going on right now. One is that route, and that may not get people the truth and the satisfaction they want. The other route, the route that we're watching folks walk into right now, that may be the better path to getting to the truth of what happened on January 6th. We just saw Liz Cheney walk in, and she's probably the most—a uh, lot of Republicans are angry with her, let's just say. She's public enemy number one for a lot of Republicans, but I think for a lot of people, she's uh, a truth-teller, at least in this instance. And I think the challenge—and Ellie and I probably are on the same page. I'm going to assume you—I'm uh, gonna. I'm not going to speak for you, Ellie. The problem is, is that, you know, in the case of New York, um, Cy Vance's successor inherited a case that Cy Vance, who was not exactly tough on Trump in his career, believed was ready to go. He had what Peter Strzok just said that you need. A great case that he that they, that he literally believed when he left that office could be prosecuted, and his successor, 
uh, in New York, the New York, the current New York AG said, eh, I don't want to do it. And so the problem is not doing anything is a political decision. I, I worry that, that Merrick Garden is making a political decision, that it would be too upsetting for Republicans and for Trump supporters if he did the thing that seems obvious, which is to pursue a case that is about an American coup. Your thoughts? If it's oh, me. So if you're asking me. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Ellie. That, that's for you, Ellie. Uh, OK, so let's also add the fact that the criminal referral for Mark Meadows was given to Garland months ago, like long time ago. And there still isn't um, criminal uh, indictment for that contempt. So like the contempt that maybe they vote on tonight, like when does that get when does that get uh, handled by Garland? And remember, there is a tick, 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 tick clock going on here. Eight months. That's when the midterm election is. Arguably, that's right. when the select committee's uh, uh Argue, uh, investigation is stopped. If Garland isn't here now, now he's going to be in a situation where perhaps he has to work against Congress. It's just I we need to be moving a lot quicker than what we're seeing. Uh, and we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to and Peter. I promise you will be first out of the out of the block, and then Joyce. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. Um, you can see there Adam Schiff uh, heading in. We're going to take a quick break before we get to this contempt vote. We'll be right back. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. We are back with Joyce Vance, Ellie Mastal, Peter Strzok, a great panel as we await the January 6th select committee, which are going to um, hold a contempt vote for uh, two members of Donald Trump's inner circle, his trade secretary, Peter Navarro, as well as his uh, what most people know as his uh, social media guy, Dan Scavino. Uh, but I, I want to go to you, Peter, because I know that you had a comment that you wanted to make just about the length of time that we're seeing uh, intercede here with Merrick Garland in this investigation. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, the point that I wanted to make was that it takes time to build a criminal case. Our criminal justice system is designed for decades and decades and generations to be something that is very precise, that has to meet a very high standard, because that's the system of justice we want in the United States. We don't want Vladimir Putin's Russia where on a whim he can take his political opponents, whip up charges and throw them in jail for 15, 20 years. So by design, the process of justice is there to be deliberate, to be slow, to be precise. Frequently, that runs counter to our desire, particularly in a political context, to get to the truth. And so when you look at prosecution, the prosecution is there as a tool to investigate and go after violations of the law, not necessarily to just tell the truth of everything that happened. That, on the other hand, is very much what Congress is doing. Congress, a political entity, is doing through the January 6th committee. What I worry about at the end of the day is I think we're very quickly reaching the point where there is a tension between Congress and what DOJ is doing, but I think that's 
rapidly going to precipitate into some very significant decisions where one party or the other are going to start doing things that are very much going to adversely impact what the other is trying to do. And I think we're going to see that come to a head in the next few months. You have, you have set me up perfectly uh, for the next thing that I want to talk about. But I'm going to start with Joyce on this. Uh, you've, you've, you've set me up perfectly for this because the, the concern I have for all of you, uh, you know, to, to jump in on this is that there are actors on the Republican side who are not taking this attempted coup as a cautionary tale. They're taking it as instructions, as ways to improve and tweak the process because they, too, want power. There is this extraordinary story in The Washington Post about Ted Cruz climbing all over his supposed principles and trying to jump over Josh Hawley to get his fist up higher for the insurrection and to help his former literal political enemy, Donald Trump, who called him all sorts of names, called his father a murderer, called his wife ugly, you know, called him lion Ted and all of that, and trying to keep Trump in power. Um, Ted, uh, John Eastman, who in that great case, that, that extraordinary uh, ruling that we talked about, was asked about Ted Cruz and whether he had any communication with Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, and his efforts to change the outcome of the 2020 election, declined to answer, invoke the fifth, Joyce. I find that interesting. Let's go to the timeline. Um, Ted Cruz amplified, we're going to put this timeline up on, so this is number two. He amplifies Trump's stolen election claims, goes on Hannity and Combs, and Hannity, sorry, Hannity, no, no more Combs anymore, announces that he's going to represent Pennsylvania Republicans in an effort to block the certification of the election. That case gets rejected. On December 8th, my birthday, uh, December, uh, Trump asks him to argue the lawsuit that would overturn the election in multiple states. That case gets rejected. He releases a plan for states to start a, quote, emergency 10-day audit to delay the electoral vote count. Then on January 6th, he is the first senator to object to the Arizona um, election uh, results. Then even after the siege of the Capitol, he votes, these are both after the siege of the Capitol, he votes to reject, uh, after the siege of the Capitol, he votes to reject Pennsylvania. He's involved, Joyce. He's involved in the effort from beginning to end, from December all the way to January. Should he not be subpoenaed by the January 6th committee? So this is a perfect illustration of the point that Pete was just trying to make. For one thing, it shows why these criminal cases can take so long. It's because if you jump too early, you can miss important pieces of, of what could or could not be criminal conduct. But we know that John Eastman and Senator Cruz were actually co-clerks together many years ago for Judge Ledig. Often people who clerk for a judge at the same time develop a close friendship. They were members of the Federalist Society, so they would have had a lot of opportunity to stay in touch. That tells me, whether I'm a congressional investigator or a prosecutor, that I need to understand more about that relationship. It may be innocent, but there may be important pieces of information here that contribute to our understanding of what happened on January 6th. And so to your question about whether we want to set a, a precedent for subpoenaing a sitting senator, a big part of that comes down to whether I, as the January 6th committee, have the ability to enforce my subpoenas. And that's exactly what we'll learn more about tonight. Congress has to rely on the Justice Department if it chooses this path of going yep. obstruction of justice when people don't comply with their subpoenas so far, it's been a real mixed bag. DOJ agreed to prosecute Steve Bannon. We're still willing or we're still waiting to hear about the fate of Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, what mm -hmm. DOJ would do if the January 6th committee subpoenaed a senator is, I think, yep. very much up in the air.
Indeed. Uh, we're we're going to start uh, sort of paying attention here because we can see Chairman Benny Thompson. He's touching the mic and he's taking off his mask. I think he might be about to start this proceeding. We can see Liz Cheney to uh, his, I guess, stage left here and uh, uh, Zoe Lofgren uh, to his right. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.